Um, if you've come to our, our Christmas performance, uh, don't y'all love this lighting, by the way, that we've got? Isn't that cool? I thought that was cool. Some software I've been working on writing and, and getting the media team to learn how to use it and everything. But I think I've about got them there. No, it's awesome. But... Um, uh, if you've been to one of our productions, you've seen that I've been promoting a new sermon series uh, that's going to be starting called New, a new sermon series called New. Uh, and I've had several questions. Are we not going to finish Romans? Of course we're going to finish Romans. If you'll remember the very first message we did in Romans, I said, this is going to be a long one. Jesus, probably good chance he'll return before I get to the end of this. And, uh, and that we will probably take a couple of breaks in it. And don't know that we're going to have a couple of breaks, but we are going to have one. And just trying to capitalize on, you know, as January, as people are thinking about maybe getting back into church and kind of reviving their relationship with the Lord, having a, uh, a surf excuse me, a sermon series that maybe we can kind of promote, kind of help get that momentum and that activity going in their lives versus saying, join us in January for uh, sermon number 18 of like 5,000, uh, you know, have something to do. So we're going to, we are going to do a new sermon series. I'm going to finish today, chapter six, the next couple of Sundays, of course, we'll be doing some uh, Christmas messages. And then uh, when we start in January, we're going to do this, this series that you've seen promoted or will be seeing uh, promoted and then in February we'll be back and, and moving on in Romans probably with not any interruptions till we hopefully get near the end of that uh, somewhere this time probably next year but anyway uh, if you are familiar with Roman history, you might be familiar with the name Marcus Aurelius. He was the, the emperor during the second century, second century. And under him, uh, Christianity was illegal. Because it was illegal, then persecution was validated. It was, it was affirmed, it was encouraged. And, and the Christians who lived in that era lived under an intense persecution. Being arrested was very much expected, a very common experience, moving from arrest to torture, uh, and in many cases, even death. But before it would reach that point, the believer, the Christian, would be given the opportunity to deny their faith, to recant. And, and for those, and it was many who remained undeterred, who were willing to pay the price they would simply answer. It kind of became among them. This is, this is our answer. I am Christian. Just that simple statement. And many of them, as they were being led to their death, I am Christian. It summed up their existence. It summed up how they would live and, if necessary, how they would die. That simple term. Now, we know that as history unfolds, that term kind of becomes the term, doesn't it? That, that's kind of the singular term that, that we are labeled by, that we are called Christians. Uh, which is interesting because in the, in the New Testament, it doesn't prescribe, here's the term you're to be called. Here's the label that you're to have. The word Christian was actually, it's only used three times in the New Testament. The, the name or the word Christian. And it was actually coined by unbelievers. It wasn't a New Testament writer or Jesus who said, now, if you follow me, I want you to be called Christian. It was unbelievers who started using that name. And they used it uh, as a name of derision, to, to, to mock and to make fun of the idea that somebody would follow a crucified Christ. I mean, you follow victors. You, you follow warriors. You follow winning kings. You don't, you don't follow somebody that's been executed. And so they used that name to mock and to make fun of people, but... Darn if the Christians just didn't turn it around and it became a badge of honor. 
That name began to imply uh, an affection for, an allegiance to, and a likeness to the one that they followed, Jesus Christ. Now, the New Testament actually uses a whole host of names for us. It'll refer to us in a multitude of different ways. Believers, disciples, children of God, lights to the world, um, ambassadors for Jesus. It has all kinds of names, but but there is one. Again, no name prescribed, no, no name that the New Testament says, this is what you have to be called. But there does appear to be one name that dominates among New Testament writers. One name that seems to be used over and over and more and more than, than any of the other names. And it's a name we never use of ourselves. Isn't that interesting? A name that they use the most is a name we don't use at all. It's the name slave. The name slave, the word doulos in the Greek language, is used to describe a believer or or refer to a believer 40 times. Remember Christian 3? 40 times you and I are referred to as a slave or a, a slave of Jesus. Another 30 times the language of the doulos is implied indirectly to you and to me. So this is far and away the dominant name the New Testament writers saw you and I carrying into our world as it defined who we were, as it defined what we were. And again, a name that we would rarely, if ever, use of ourselves. It is a name that Paul uses today in our passage, not not as much about a, a title or, or what our name is in the world, but a name that would answer a question. The question, is sin okay? I'm a follower. I'm a believer in Jesus. I've been saved by grace. Heaven is mine. Forgiveness is, is mine. So is sin okay? Let's see how Paul answers that. Would you turn with me in your Bible this morning to Romans chapter 6? Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. If there's not one right in front of you, it'll be on the road there. If you point to it, I know somebody will hand it to you. But I want everybody to be able to read along. Romans chapter 6. We're going to read verses 15 to 23. Romans 6 verse 15. Says there, what then? Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Do you not know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God, thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern pattern of teaching you were entrusted to. And having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to moral impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from allegiance to righteousness. And what fruit was produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now, since you have been liberated from sin and become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the end is eternal life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here we are at the, uh, the Christmas season, and boy, we're in full swing now. It's not the day after Thanksgiving anymore, is it? No, no, no. We got the lights up, the trees up, shopping's underway, the, the debts are running high, we're, we're, we're getting parties covered, parties coming, Christmas plays, Christmas services, Christmas goodies, it's all coming together, and it all leads to one big moment when we come to listen to the pastor on Christmas Eve, Amen. Yeah, right, sure, yeah. That's right up there. The best of Christmas. No, it's about the gifts. Now, I'm not saying the right or the wrongness of that. I'm just talking about just cold, hard reality, right? I mean, doesn't the whole thing, we started after Thanksgiving, and it all peaks, it all kind of culminates in that moment when we open their gifts. That, that's kind of the big buildup to that spot. You know, I wonder, was there a big buildup for God on that first Christmas morning? What, was there a big buildup as, as he got ready to deliver the perfect gift? Have you ever had the perfect gift? E- ever been just so excited about what you got? I mean, so excited to see the expression on their face. So, so excited. I mean, you, you were I mean, so much more focused on what you were going to give than what you were going to get. I mean, this is the perfect gift. And man, God didn't just start putting this together, you know, on Black Friday. Man, he planned this in eternity. He's been thinking about this, I mean, literally, who can say this? Forever! And here it is, the Christmas morning that the gift is coming. This big moment when he delivers the perfect gift that's going to meet every need all the way into eternity future. I wonder if God felt a big buildup for that moment. You know, when we, if you think about it, when we talk about God's gift, man, we use some pretty high language, don't we? Some pretty positive, some pretty exciting language. I mean, when we're talking about God's gift, we're talking about forgiveness of sins and eternal life and eternal rewards and adoption as a child of God. I mean, it's just big, it's grand, it's it's glorious. We use such glowing terms and for good reason. But perhaps that's what makes this passage so strange, weird, awkward. I mean, you do see the gift that's being offered to you in this passage, don't you? The gift you're being given is a chance to change owners. God, in giving you this gift, is giving you the opportunity to be a a slave of Jesus Christ. Man, who wants that? (laughs) The answer is nobody. I mean, this is the gift that we get up early December 26th to make sure we're in line at the store to return this thing. And give this back. I don't, I don't want to be a slave. You know, I, I think this passage is so weird. I, I think one of two things happens when we read it. We read it and we go, huh, on to the next chapter. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't, doesn't even register. Or we read it and we think, okay, now what's God getting at here? What, what's, what's God's angle? What's the word play? What's he doing here? He's going to spin this thing and make it positive. And Folks, the answer is he's, he's not doing any word play. It's not a game. It's not a metaphor. He's not getting ready to spin it. It, it pretty much means like it reads. God's the owner. You're the slave. That means each morning you check in with him, not he with you. That's not an issue of whether you got enough sleep the night before or whether you're feeling a certain need for God at the moment, you're a slave. You check in with God this morning. 
When we check in with God, now we really get this reversed. When we check in with God, we look for his to-do list for us. What do we normally do in the moment we do give God? We give him the to-do list. But we're the slave and he's the owner. That means now that my life is about his business, not my business. My life is about the, the promotion and the exaltation of him. Never. Slave doesn't promote and exalt self. It's all about the owner. When you really kind of grasp and get a hold of this whole slave owner thing, you realize that your life is now going to become less and less and less. And he is going to become more and more and more in your life. And who, who would want that? Maybe the reason we would do that is because of where it ends. Now, when I say where it ends, we, we need to make sure we're clear on something. You're not, at, you're not being offered a choice between freedom. There, there's your freedom over here, or you can choose slavery to Jesus. Now, did you hear what it said in the passage? You are a slave, period. You are going to be a slave on this planet. You are going to be either A, a slave to sin, or you're going to be a slave to Jesus. Now, if you remain in, if you stay enslaved to sin, there, there's, a, there's a life there, and it's going to go somewhere, and it's going to end somewhere. In that life, if you'll notice in verse 19, you deteriorate. In, in slavery to sin, you spiral downward. Do you see there? It becomes more and more lawlessness. In this life, you become less. And every one of us, prior to Christ, without Christ, before Christ, is a slave to sin. It'll look different in all of our lives. It'll look different for every one of us. We'll each choose our own false god. That, that thing, that item, that person, that concept in which we think, man, that's life. That, that's happiness. That's fulfillment. That, that will give me what I need. And we, we give ourselves wholly to serving that approval that, that certain relationship, that accomplishment, that, that love, if I get that, and we'll serve it with sin, because a false god, a false idol, always demands sin. So if, if, if I need to lie, then I lie. If I need to be sexually immoral, then I'll be, I'll be sexually immoral. If I need to cheat, I'll cheat. I will serve this God as it requires. And in that process, we just spiral downward. We become less and less in life. And ultimately, it says we end in verse 16, in death. So we are born a slave to sin. It's going to take us down throughout life to where we ultimately end in death. Now, I'm reading this passage. And I'm thinking, I heard what just here recently, we went over 7 billion people in the world. There's 7 billion people. So I'm reading this passage and I'm thinking, you know, Lord, there, most of these 7 billion people aren't going to buy this. Uh, certainly the unbelievers are not. And honestly, I think a whole lot of believers aren't going to buy this either. You know, this whole concept that I am a slave. Again, we're not talking about believers. But prior to Christ, without Christ, I'm a slave to sin. Lord, I'm thinking a whole lot of people are going to read this and they're just going to say, no, I'm not. Uh-uh, I'm, I'm not either. So, Lord, you know, what do I do with this passage? Is, is the goal of this passage, did you intend people to explain it, to, you know, to kind of break it down and explain how you and I are a slave to sin? Or God, is it to prove it? Man, I got to bring the evidence. Here it is. Look in your life. Boom, boom, boom. Here's the evidence that you're a slave to sin. The proof. 
Or, and I think I opted for option number three because it just seemed a lot easier. When they say, "Uh uh-uh, I say, well, God says you are. I mean, what really more is there to explain or prove than that? God knows everything. He knows your heart and mind better than you know your own heart and mind. And he says you are a slave to sin. Just, God says you are. I mean, I don't really need a whole lot to add to that. I think it does need to be explained. I think it can be proved. But the bottom line is, whether you feel like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you understand it or not, God says you are a slave to sin and that will end in death. That's where that life, that's where that process will go for you. Death. And that death, folks, oh my gosh, has nothing to do with a casket and a funeral. That death is an eternity because we never cease to exist, not for a second. That death is an eternity with the false God of your choice. You know the operative word in false God? False. False means empty. Meaningless. There's nothing actually to it. So now I have an eternity of emptiness. Meaningless. There's nothing actually to it. Here I've given my life striving because I believe this would give me life. And you know what I'm going to find? An eternity of never. Can, I don't even know we can imagine this. Folks, on your worst day, in your worst moments, you've had moments of satisfaction. You were thirsty and you took a sip of water. It satisfied your thirst. Can you imagine eternity of drinking and never chasing the thirst away? Eating and the hunger never stops. Working and building and you accomplish nothing. Nothing. Not for a single moment is there rest. Is there, is there peace? Is there a sense of satisfaction that just for a moment everything's right and okay? Because the false can't give that. Man, no wonder, no wonder there in verse 17, Paul says, man, thank God. Oh my gosh, thank God. I was enslaved to that. I couldn't do anything about it. This is where it was going. This is where it was going to take me. Thank God. He gave me a chance to step out of that and become enslaved to Christ. In in, in slavery to Christ, I don't spiral downward becoming less. No, it says there that I become righteous. In righteousness, I become the fulfillment of everything God created me to be. So in other words, in slavery to Christ, I become more and more and more of what God designed and what God created. And look where it ends. It ends in life and life eternal with the true God where there's an eternity of satisfaction. An eternity of satisfaction. You know, your false God abandons you. The real God not only does not abandon you, but you find out that the one you're enslaved to really loves you. He's more like a a loving father. As a matter of fact, it says of all these slaves, he's going to adopt them. And you're going to have the rights of a son in heaven. You're literally going to be called a co-heir with Christ. A co-heir. You know what that concept means? One day, my mom and dad are going to die. And, and I, me and their two, my two sisters, we, you know, we're co-heirs. We're going to go get their stuff. We, we get their stuff. We're going to stand there equal. Randy, Debbie, Amy, we stand there as co-heirs of this. God is saying, I'm going to stand there with Jesus as a co-heir. And that's where slavery to God ends. It ends with me standing next to him as a co-heir of the riches of heaven. Thank God. Maybe that's why we would choose slavery to God. Because of how this all ends.
Now, our passage today is not about Christmas. Y'all got that, don't you? It's not about Christmas. It's not, not about a gift. It's not about an opportunity. Our passage today is answering a question. In Romans chapters 1 through 3, it made it very clear our works Our character and personality, our religious rituals, our religious hoops that we jump through, none of that's going to add up to anything. It will not get you into a relationship with God. It will not get you into heaven. So you end chapter 3 going, oh my gosh, man, I'm I'm in deep trouble. There's nothing I can do. Then we come into chapters 4 and 5 and it says, oh no, man, God wants you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know heaven. And he has provided a way through his grace. His grace will rescue you from sin and death and hell. And that grace is deposited in your life through faith in Jesus Christ. Now you and I might be like, well, what about this sin? Or what about this one over here? I've committed so many times. And we end chapter 5 and it says, man, no matter what sin you have, God's got the grace to cover it. No matter how many sins you have, God's got the grace to cover it. Now that's wonderful news. And in church, we're going to praise God and say amen and hallelujah. But then in the quietness of our mind, we're going to start thinking, now wait a minute. If I'm forgiven and I've got heaven and that's secure and there's enough grace to cover any of my sin, well... Does my sin really matter? I mean, if I'm going to be forgiven anyway, then what difference does it make? Now, we wouldn't say this out loud in church, but it goes through our mind. And last week we saw Paul say, man, you can't sin. You're on team Jesus. We talked about what it meant to be identified with him and how sin was inconsistent with that. But today Paul goes a step further and he says, man, you're a slave. You're a slave of Christ. A slave only does what the master allows A slave only does what the master calls for. A slave can't do anything opposed to the master. I can't. So Paul's thinking here is, I can't, I can't lie. I'm a slave. I can't think or act sexually immoral. I'm a slave. I can't cheat. I'm a slave. I can't lash out in anger or greed or selfishness. I'm a slave. I can't ignore the need of my fellow slaves of Jesus. Because I'm a slave. I can't be insensitive to those who are still enslaved to sin because my master cares deeply about him and them and I'm his slave. Folks, as a slave, you realize it has nothing to do with how tired you are, what kind of weekend you've had or week you're going to have. When you wake up in the morning, there's one driving thought in your life. What is my master's will and what does his word say? Any day you start without a desire for his will and a passion for his word is a day you're beginning in rebellion to your master. Because I'm a slave. Folks, lest we think that there's still some kind of metaphor to get to here and slave doesn't really mean what it means. Let me take you to another verse. It's not in Romans. Again, Paul writing to the Corinthian church where he makes this so clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. He says, you're not your own. How many people in this world, how many people in this room live under the ridiculous delusion that you think you actually own something? That car is mine. That house is mine. These clothes are mine. That job is mine. These kids are mine. That maid is mine. These parents are mine. This day is mine. The air in my lungs is mine. Folks, you own nothing. You own absolutely nothing. Because you are a slave. You are possessed. You have been bought. You were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And in that truth and in that reality, the scripture says, you've got one right on this planet. 
You've got one job today. You might do this job married and you might do it single. You might do it old, you might do it young. You might do it healthy, you might do it unhealthy. You might do it in a great job, you might do it in a horrible job. You might do it in a great marriage, you might do it in a horrible marriage. But you got one job. And that is to glorify God in your body. Anything you're doing outside of His will where it makes you a rebellious slave. You don't have the right to choose what you want to do. Guys, what's that look like? How how does somebody actually do that? Well, let's come back to the Christmas story. The Christmas story starts. An angel. Gosh, that's got to be pretty cool, doesn't it? I'd sign up for an angel to come visit. Five minutes. Five minutes. An angel, Gabriel, comes and talks to this little girl. 14, 15, 16 years old. Says you're going to have a baby. Might consider that to be pretty good news. Mary says, I'm not married. I haven't been with a man. I uh, don't think I can do that. That's all. She asks one question, how? How does a virgin have a, a baby? And Gabriel explains. You know, we really have a great inability to process and understand where Mary is in this process because of how history unfolded after that. Because we've made such a hero of the faith out of her. And, and because we do know the whole story. I mean, she's carrying the Son of God. I mean, now, it'd probably be a line. I'll do that. I'll do that. Let me be that. You know, we'd line up for that. But, but let's go prior to that moment. Let's just go five minutes before history begins to unfold and realize what Mary's trying to process. She lives in a world, she lives in a community where you don't show up pregnant. That's not going to be okay. So the angel says, you're going to be pregnant. The first thought is, What am I going to tell my mom and dad? What am I going to tell my fiancé? Because he knows he didn't do it. What what, what am I going to say? And quite possibly the first thought that's coming to her mind is, I will be stoned. That's not something you do with a joint in New Testament days. That's something that happens with rocks. You get killed. I'll be executed for this. Now she could be thinking, okay, maybe it won't work out that bad. The next best case scenario is I'm an outcast in this community for the rest of my life. An outcast as a person is bad. Outcast as a woman, there's no chance. I'm going to be an outcast for the rest of my life. Oh, I know what I can do. I can just explain what the angel said. It was, it was all by the Holy Spirit. I'm still a virgin. Okay, let's see. That means I'm going to be a crazy outcast for the rest of my life. I mean, folks, you realize how many times we read the Bible and we bring so much context to it, we really don't understand what they're they're seeing, what they're hearing, what they're experiencing. I'm telling you, Mary has to be scared and she has to be looking at several scenarios that come out of this and they, they don't turn out real good for her. Which is what makes her response utterly incredible in Luke 1.38. This is her one line. She says one thing to this ridiculous story. I am the Lord's slave. As I was studying this passage this week in Romans 6, and I didn't intentionally go to it, the Lord just kind of connected him to all of a sudden I saw the Christmas story and Mary's statement there. All of a sudden I realized, do you see the incredible clarity and simplicity this one thought brings to your entire Christian life? Think how many things we debate with Scripture. I don't know if I like that. 
Oh, I don't know if I believe that. Oh, I'm not doing that. Well, that's impossible. You know, all of a sudden I look at Mary here dealing with the impossible, dealing with something she may not like, may not understand, dealing with something that is absolutely going to cost her. Lord, I don't understand this. Lord, I don't know if I can believe this. Lord, this is going to cost. This is going to hurt. People are going to reject. She doesn't have to work through any of those things. I don't have to ask it. I don't have to work through it. All I need to know is I am the Lord's slave. It doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what I can understand. It doesn't matter what I can figure out and what will this look like for me? How will this work out for me? What will the future... I'm the Lord's slave. You spent time this week wrestling with a command of God. Wrestling with whether you're really going to do that or not. Whether, whether you can... God, if, I go, if I go out there and be a witness for you, I know they'll make fun, they'll reject. God, I can't, I can't give to you. Have you seen the economy? I'm not going to forgive them. They haven't changed. They're not going to change. They're going to keep acting the same way. See, we have to work it all. We, God gives a command. We work it all out. Who, pray tell, do you think you are? A slave doesn't work it out. A slave doesn't reason through it and figure out how it results for him. He just does. He just does. Would you hear Mary's words all this week? I am the Lord's slave. Let's see how many times this week as we've got questions, as we're dealing with people, as we're responding to something, as we're initiating something, as we're working through something. Let's see how many times this week we can say to ourselves just this one thing. I am the Lord's slave. So what does his slave do right here? Amen? Let's pray. Father, I think there's I guess it'll be uh, this May I'll have been a follower of Jesus Christ a follower of yours for 30 years. Lord, I think there's probably very, very few of those years few of those days where I've really approached them as a slave. Lord, I'd like to certainly think I approached many of that with how do I serve you and honor you and live for you. God, I want to live in a way that says thank you. I want to obey. But Lord, I think I've missed something and I probably have made some decisions I shouldn't have made and I've probably made things a lot more stressful and a lot more difficult because I really thought that I needed to weigh in and I needed to give my input and I needed to talk about what I thought. I'm a slave. And if that means pain in this moment, then so be it. If that means cost in this moment, then, then so be it. If that means I don't wind up completely and totally happy in this moment, then so be it. I am your slave. The only thing really necessary in this is that you're glorified. That you are promoted, that you are seen, and that you are exalted. I am a slave to my school. I'm a slave to my job, to my marriage, to that good situation, to that bad situation. I'm a slave to that. My one responsibility there is to show you, to exalt and glorify and promote you. And God, I would confess for myself, and I believe for many in here, we've lived a huge hunk of life 
with nothing but the promotion of self and what winds up for my happiness with no thought of how you're seen or glorified in this. God, we approach so much of life acting like we own the moment so it's our moment to determine what to do with. Forgive us of our wickedness. Forgive us of our evil. We have spiraled downward so far we don't even recognize what we're doing in front of you and before you. We never acknowledge we've been bought. God, I'm so grateful that I can confess that. I have the promise of your forgiveness. Help me to realize today as a slave that forgiveness does not free me to leave here and go back out and build up a new mountain of sin. That forgiveness gives me the freedom and the ability to serve you, to glorify you. And when it's all done, oh gosh, thank you, God. I get to stand next to Jesus like he was like my brother and receive the wealth of heaven. Your goodness is beyond my comprehension. How easy you've made it to be your slave. May I live like it this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.